welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. I realized I missed ringing that great big bell at Spirit Rock on Monday night that calls everybody together. It's one of my favorite things to hit that huge bowl bell and have it resonate for so many people. So I invite you to listen, not so much to be taught, spare you that, but at best to be reminded of something that you already know or to reflect in some way on what matters and to reflect on what are the teachings of wisdom or understanding that can help us, especially in this kind of wild time. I mean, here we are post-election or semi-post-election, it looks like. And I have this feeling it's like a Greek play. I can't tell whether it's a comedy or a tragedy. And there's, you know, the Greek chorus singing in the wings and, all of the different social media kind of adding their voices to it. And for some, it looks like it's playing out like uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described with denial, anger, and bargaining, all of that going on, you know, wherever you are. It's a really confusing time. But it's all confusing. And it's all made of these paradoxes that aren't easily solved. You know, here we are in our politics. Are we supposed to be taking care of ourselves? Should we leave the international world? Should we interact with it more fully and take care of it? Here we are, you know, social beings. But if you were among the 50 million people who watched that movie, The Social Dilemma, that talked about the problems with technology, we have the blessings of Zoom and all the great things from technology and all the problems that it creates for teenage girls looking at their body through the magnifying toxic influence of the, you know, social media or the, the misuse of it politically. And then we have our families, you know, which are our source of both joy and blessing and trouble. As you know, since Jesus and Buddha had trouble with their families, you know, it's just part of being human. Um, And that's how it is, love and difficulty. And then maybe you're creative and you're an artist, but, you know, is it a society that even supports artists? What's your role? The individual, the collective, we're supposed to be in the land of the free. But what does that mean? What is freedom? Nelson Mandela, when he got out of 20 seven years in Robben Island prison and stood up in front of the new nation, the remade nation of South Africa with such magnanimity and graciousness and wisdom. And he spoke of freedom. He said, you are not yet free when he looked at everyone there. He said, you merely have the freedom to be free. (laughs) 
kind of an amazing statement. You are not yet free. You merely have the freedom to be free, to take that freedom and do what you will with it. And here we are in a time that's crying for racial and social justice. And you see those statues of the goddess justice holding the scales with a blindfold on to be blind. But now there's another meaning for that blindness of justice to not see and have been blind for years, decades, maybe centuries to the injustice built into the very system that she serves. What do we do with all this? How do we navigate the blessings, the paradoxes, the difficulties of it? And, you know, when I was in elementary school, (sighs) 60 more years ago, 65 years ago, 70 years ago, They taught us about Thanksgiving, and we made those turkeys, you know, that you cut out like your hand, right? And they gave us the childhood story of how the good pilgrims and the good Indians came together and ate turkey and all of those kind of mythological story for our harvest festival. And yet we know, honestly, when we look about the genocide of the Native Americans, of the First Nations, that was really woven into that story. And what happened to them at the hands of those who came to, from Europe to conquer, and in most cases to kill? And yet what we've lost, their wisdom of the land and the environment and the animals and the plants and the, the wisdom of community, that the Iroquois nation, you know, bequeathed to the framers of the Constitution. So how do we navigate all of this? And I would suggest some words for us. Wonder, mystery, awe, gratitude. Let me read you a poem from Mary Oliver, one of our great Dharma poet laureates. This morning, two mockingbirds in the green field were spinning and tossing the white ribbons of their songs into the air, and I had nothing better to do than listen. I mean this seriously. In Greece, a long time ago, An old couple opened their door to two strangers who were, it soon appeared, not men at all, but gods. It's my favorite story, how the old couple had almost nothing to give but their willingness to be attentive. And for this alone, the gods loved them and blessed them when they rose out of their mortal bodies like a million particles of water from a fountain The light swept into all the corners of the cottage, and the old couple, shaken with understanding, bowed down. But still they asked for nothing but the difficult life which they had already. 
and the gods smiled as they vanished, clapping their great wings. Whatever it was I was supposed to be this morning, whatever it was I said I would be doing, I was standing at the edge of the field. I was hurrying through my own soul, opening the doors. I was leaning out. I was listening. And of course, she writes about that story. I think it's from Ovid of Baucus and Philemon, the two in that cottage, and how they were blessed in a different way by the gods. But they were blessed because they gave this extraordinary gift. The gods apparently had gone to many other houses. You know how these myths work and kind of in the form of asking for food, asking for some something to be taken care of. And they were turned away. And then finally at this door, this old couple welcomed them. They became, like Rumi wrote in that poem you all know so well, they became the guest house to welcome each visitor. And they offered what Mary Oliver describes as the great gift, which is the gift of attention. When somebody asks for a little attention, it's actually not a small thing. It's what makes the gods smile when we're actually able to pay attention in that way. It lets us see something entirely different. So when my beloved Trudy was young. She told this story when we were teaching together yesterday or the day before. When she was a young mother and her daughter was two and a half years old, she was living in Geneva near her parents. Her dad worked for the WHO as one of their top doctors for the, you know, health of the world. And her daughter got very sick with the most virulent form of meningitis and went into a coma, if you can imagine, and was in the hospital for almost two months. And toward the end of that time, when it got as bad as it got, she coded. which simply means that everybody has to rush to the side of that person because they're not sure they'll make it. And Trudy describes sitting there with this little body of her daughter that she'd been sitting with for weeks and living on a cot next to her in that hospital, praying, worried, the way a mother, only a mother could. She said, and I saw all these people, the nurses and the doctors and the people trying to put needles into her tiny little veins. And then all of a sudden, she said, the room filled with light, like that cottage. She said, and I, who never really thought about God or what God was, she said, I saw God. And it was those nurses 
those doctors, those people at the bedside. And even as we speak, there are hundreds of thousands of acts of generosity and goodness, billions of them around the world, where we are tending one another as human beings. And as a monk, every morning when we would come into the Dharma Hall, still in the dark before dawn and light candles and do our morning chanting, part of the chants were a blessing chant of thanks and gratitude for the food we had, for the garments we were given to wear for the shelter of our place, for the community around us that we might remember every day this gratitude and that we might then set our intention and dedicate ourselves from all that's been given. And part of these chants were really a reflection to sense that we are part of a deeper order of things. Doris was a 50-something single mom with three teenagers and a, and a uh, budding career, but she was plagued with anxiety. One of her daughter's best friends had committed suicide. Another was struggling with her sexual identity. She as a mother was full of worry, full of fears and indecision and panic. She said, when I learned about mindfulness, it touched me. It made sense, so I went on a retreat. The silence and the police were blissful. I think about that, leaving the three teenagers and going off on retreat. Ah, thank you. No decisions to make, only to be present and kind to myself. What came first was a subtle change in the perception of who I am. I realized my heart had atrophied. I'd have a lot of fear and pain inside, which prevented me from giving love to myself and others. I practiced a gentle acceptance of aspects of myself that I'd rejected and now felt grateful to know. This gentle opening over the days left me less caught in suffering. I began to trust myself being fallible and human and yet so much more. Then what I call the little miracle happened. I was on a slow, mindful walk, totally quiet, and then I disappeared. There was no one, only vast silence and the wind. It became a day of joyful, amazing freedom. And now I know that I'm so much bigger than my fears. Some days I can still feel that vast dance, and others I'm still standing on the sidelines. But all I have to do is unfold my arms and step forward into life, and I'm free again. In a moment, we can shift our identity and step out of what's called the body of fear. We can release what we've carried when we were, as we can be, so loyal to our suffering and become something bigger.
Many years ago, in the late 70s, I was invited to the Manager Foundation, and one portion of Manager Foundation was a group that was studying altered consciousness and weird things, and of course they invited me. You know, that's how it works. Um, and it was all the meditation people and the shamans and that sort of thing. And we had our conference and sharing and all, all the things that you would expect in that sort of a gathering. And then one of the people who was there was a man named Mad Bear. And Mad Bear was an Iroquois medicine man. And we were each invited to give teachings. I gave some bit of a talk and guided meditation. And Mad Bear said, I can't give teachings in here. Come with me. And he led us out the door to the outdoors of Kansas. Huge skies and fields of corn, of course, but vast vistas. And we stood there in a sort of a circle, a rough circle in the fields nearby. And then he began to make a prayer. And my gosh, he went on for a long time, that prayer. I kept thinking, when is he going to finish? He's praying and praying. And it went on and on. It went on for like 45 minutes. And as I stayed with it and listened, I began to feel something so different. It wasn't a prayer. It was his gratitude for the people and the animals and the plants and the insects and the creatures of the sky and the sea and the air and the water, the fire and the earth, and all their joyful exertions that bless us every day. And he gave gratitude to the care and labor of a thousand generations of ancestors and elders that came before us on that land and other lands and the earth. And gratitude for our safety and well-being and whatever health we have. And gratitude for our friends and family and community. And then he got very particular and he went down to the earth. Gratitude for Mother Earth for holding us so we don't fly off into space. Gratitude for that which lives in Mother Earth, for the web of life under the soil, the worms and the rhizomes, you know, and the wood-wide web of the trees sending their sugar to their offspring and to the other trees, which we now know about. And gratitude to the birds. Oh, he did the little birds first you know, that would come. And then he did the great birds. And the gratitude for the animals of that land, for the buffalo that were still there in our imagination, even when we couldn't see them. Gratitude for the clouds and the sunlight. And by the time he was done, it was as if he'd done this long practice of loving kindness and mindfulness and mystery of this earth. And we all went back inside, slightly stoned, (laughs) and happier than when we'd walked out and connected with one another. The unseen world 
My dear friend Sylvia Borstein, colleague at Spirit Rock, said that her main practice at one point had become just saying thank you to whatever arose. Thank you. Thank you, like the poet says, thank you, dark though it is. And I sat with her as she told me that, and I challenged her. And I said, thank you to everything. She said, yes. I said, Sylvia, how about the Holocaust? Because she had lost family in the Holocaust. She got very quiet. She looked up and she said, no, thank you. And there was something wise in that. It even had a thank you there. Your gratitude grows. In Tibet, in Vajrayana practice, you pray for suffering. Grant that I may have enough suffering that my cold or defended or frightened or shamed or grieving heart can become the great heart of compassion. Gratitude for our tears, a kind of humility and grace. I think about the movie of John Lewis, the great elder who recently passed, who worked for tirelessly for racial justice. And he called it, the movie was the title, he called it Good Trouble. And I think that's what the Tibetans pray for. May I be given good trouble. And I found when I sat last week, as I do each time and get quieter, that my own personal tears became, after a while, what's called the tears of the way. Not the tears because we've had our own personal griefs and losses, which I have had, and so have you but the tears that connect us. And so there, there I was. I have a tiny little writer's cottage up in the, hidden up in the trees above Spirit Rock. Fortunately has a heater and running water, so I can kind of stay there. And it was wonderful to be there. And my mind started to get a little bit quiet. And I got a bit more aware. And as I would get quiet, I would also see my personality kick in. And when I was first in the Peace Corps, learning, um, getting prepared to work on these tropical medical teams in the Mekong River Valley, um, they gave gave all of us a, a Thai name, a name in Thai, as I was learning to speak Thai. And these teachers looked at me, and they just, they called me Mr. Doing because I was always doing something and playing. And so there I was sitting, feeling loving kindness and vastness, and my mind would kick in. And it had ideas and plans and things that I'm going to do. And I'm on these boards, and I, you know, I'm working for um, immigrant rights, and I'm aboard in this huge climate change thing, and I'm involved in a, you know, a project that's trying to change the way technology is you know, working in a healthy way and all these kind of things, Mr. Doing. And then I just had to say, oh, there he is. There's Jack, you know, kind of bow and say, yeah, he's done some pretty good things, but that's not who I really am. But it's nice. I get this incarnation. It's actually a pretty blessed one. I get to do some good things. 
but I need to hold it all. And as I let myself quiet, then actually deeper tears came, and they weren't about me. They were the friends whose child died of a overdose, you know. And the people I know in communities of color that have been hit so hard by COVID. Um, and the tears for the lost, you know, of the rainforests. And then one day, a peacock came. And I haven't seen peacocks at Spirit Rock until this year, but I guess once we got out of the way, they decided they were going to come and visit. And it came right up to my cabin and kind of pecked on the door a little bit while I was sitting. I said, thank you. Thank you for the marvelous visit. And little by little, there was a shift of not only holding the mind, which does a thing, you know, and the personality, and the body, my body, which was tenser than I'd remembered or felt when I got there. But when I sat still, it reminded me, and gradually it unwinded. And mostly there was just a shift, not just of a vastness, but also a shift of love, that all of it was fine, that all of it was intended as a human being to be part of our incarnation in some way to be held with understanding. Dear friends, the Buddhist texts begin, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget your true nature. And so we have these practices. You have them, I have them, we share them. And they open us to our true nature. They open the heart to hold the entire world, mindful, loving awareness and compassion. And, of course, the, all these studies, the 8,000 papers and studies from the neuroscientists of the last few decades on these trainings, they explain, as my friend Dan Siegel, neuroscientist, called it, that one of the gifts is expanding the window of tolerance. Like Rumi's guest house again, learning to teach, teach sorry, learning to treat each guest honorably to receive what life offers us with some sense of gratitude. Here's the deal. You got a human incarnation like me. It will include majestic suffering. Overcome all bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you, said the Sufis like the mother of the world who carries a certain measure of that cosmic pain in your heart. You're called upon to meet it in compassion and not self-pity. And it has to be this way. If there's birth, there has to be death. If there's light, there's also dark. If there's a beginning, there's an end. If there's gain, there's loss. This is called duality. This is incarnation, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, praise and blame. It's what we are. It's what manifests out of nothing 
into a world of form and emptiness. Trouble? Somebody asked Zorba. Life is trouble, he said. This is the first noble truth of the Buddha. You can't avoid suffering. This is dukkha. This is suffering. But suffering is not the end of the story. This we know too. The man was my age, but looked many years older. He was an army veteran. He was also homeless, cold, and hungry. I could see he tried to wash up before coming to the social services department to ask for help. His face and hands were clean, but his clothes were filthy. Though he claimed not to have had any alcohol that day, the smell of it seeped from his pores. I wanted to get him into rehab, and I asked if he was ready to come in off the streets. No, ma'am, he said. All I'd like is a few dollars, some bus tickets. If I can get sober enough, they'll let me into the shelter across town. That shelter had 50 beds, cots, really. The homeless were admitted at night and forced out at dawn to eat breakfast at a nearby charity. 50 beds and nearly a 1,000 homeless just in this part of the city. Winters here in Northern California mean cold, rain, and mud. Even though this man and many like him slept under bridges to keep dry, the dampness penetrated everything. His clothes and the bedroll he placed on the floor smelled moldy. The pages of the book he carried were swollen. I asked him how many times he had tried rehab. Two or three, he said, long time ago. Maybe it's time to try again. I explained I'd had a client who'd gone through the program seven times before it took. Beside, I said, we're months away from warmer weather. What else have you got going on? I watched his face as he considered my offer. I thought I saw a flicker of hope in his eyes, followed by a shadow of doubt. He'd tried Bihar before. It had been hard, impossibly hard, so he was living on the streets. Finally, he lifted his head and looked at me. I reached for the phone, shall I? I asked. He barely nodded yes. And an hour later, I handed him over to a recovering alcoholic, also a veteran, who would drive him to one of the best rehab facilities in the county. Come visit me when you graduate, I said as they left. I barely recognized the man when he came into my office six months later, so tall and handsome, smelling like the outdoors and holding a huge bouquet of flowers. With your own good hearts, you are asked to learn to trust, to do what Martin Luther King Jr. said, to turn the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. In traditional cultures, this trust is learned through initiation. It's part of every wise and 
traditional culture, deliberate initiations of facing danger or death in some way to find something deeper. And you all know the stories of the Maasai, you know, sending a young man out with a spear to kill the first lion and come back acclaimed in the village as a man. The Mayans had these amazing initiations for men and women. The boys who were sent out, one of the tasks they had was to come back into village and steal the, the, the grandmother's cooking pot. And the women in the village knew they would be coming back and all had sticks to beat this person. It was really a tricky thing to be able to get the pot. I mean, there are all kinds of initiations. You know, and I think about my dear friend Maladoma Somme, who went through a whole series of very powerful initiations as a youngish man in his 20s and then again. And I said, well, these initiations, they're supposed to make you a man or prepare you for something or a woman fully. I said, what do they really prepare you for? And he laughed and he said, when you complete an initiation, it prepares you for the next initiation. <laughs> and that's how life is, you know. One of the famous Inuit shamans sent a young woman who had many visions out to become a shaman like herself and put her out in a little igloo on an ice floe for 30 days with a bit of water and one small dried fish. She said, I kind of died in there, as you can imagine. She had her visions. She said, I died a little. That was her phrase. But we all have to. We all have our initiations if we accept them. Carl Fried Durkheim, the Zen teacher, writes, the person who really being on the way falls upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn to that friend who offers them refuge and comfort and encourages their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. Maybe, maybe, out of our political gridlock and suffering, some new capacities will be born out of this dark night. Maybe we'll move from independence to interdependence from self-centeredness to thanksgiving. I like this poem by Heather Altfeld, although I changed it a lot, but she wrote a poem about all the ballots, the last of them there, waiting to be counted. Think of them shoveled into piles like old snow. I imagine them in the late night of those rooms lingering in the smell of yesterday's lunch in the tepid air with the breath held back by masks, the ballots talking among themselves about the ludicrous folly of humans who should be counting 
the vanishing whales and tigers, who should be counting the mountain gorillas and orangutans and the almost lost ringtail lemur and the gopher tortoise, who should be counting the children behind bars, who should be voting for phone lines demanding a raise in the minimum age for kindness, demanding a vote on the statutory limitations on human cruelty, a referendum to redeem our cities from an endless migration of sadness and despair. Call it now, she ends. Call it for the rivers, the trees, the rocks. Call it for the rain, who knows far better than we how to become a fierce and gentle blessing. Vote for the goodness touching us all. Reflect for a moment as you listen. When did you find trust? What awakened it in you? That sense of the indestructible, the inviolable. You have it, you know. When did you find trust? Dear friends, the last piece of what I'd like to say, we're all at the crossroads, all of us, and the crossroads is this moment that has infinity, the reality of the present, the eternal now. What will we do at the crossroads? Who are we? What's true is that we're never alone. There's a story of a young, pious nun who used to go into prayer, raise her eyes, pray and pray, and then came to the mother superior and said, I can't find God. I don't know where to find God. And the mother superior looked back to her and said, you haven't found God, my dear, because you haven't looked down. It's like truly seeing God in the bodies of those nurses and doctors. Everything is waiting for you writes David White. The great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and see the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are 
unutterably themselves, everything is waiting for you. When I teach, and when people bring up the sufferings and struggles and difficulties in their life, the shame they carry or guilt for not doing enough for the world, the addiction in their line of family, the death of a child or a parent, having a new baby, instead of being just joyful, they're overwhelmed. I'll ask them, what have you learned about how to handle this? What have you learned from this? And often they answer, something good. And then I turn to the group and I say, what have you all learned? And a kind of magic happens because the room becomes wise. It's not me or some teaching. It's the shared hearts of everyone together. And the room becomes wise. And they remind you from their hearts that you belong, that they've been through it too. They remind you that your being is enough. That you are enough. We've been training for this difficult time for many years, you know. There'll be more difficult times, as there have been. But we've been training to do this. And as human beings, we've been training for thousands of generations through pandemics and earthquakes and floods and difficulties and hurricanes and cyclones. And loss. We've been training. And I love the story of Thomas Merton when he went on his last pilgrimage, which was to India and Southeast Asia to the lands of the Buddha, when he met with the Dalai Lama and various other sages. He went to Polonarua, which is an ancient temple in Sri Lanka and a huge cliff in Polonarua of marble, marble stone, had been carved into these giant Buddhas with huge faces, a whole cliff. And he said he stood there and gazed at those faces, and to him it was the most moving work of art he'd ever seen. Because in those eyes, in those faces represented bringing alive, he saw the eyes of infinite compassion and a wise heart that rejected nothing, that understood it all, and whose response was emptiness, vastness, and boundless compassion. The words of the Buddha, they're those who discover they can leave behind destructive reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by fires of anger or fear, 
unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. This is who you are. I like to say, go look in the mirror. You look in the mirror and you notice you've aged. Remember how I teach about this? I do it myself. Losing fur in some places, getting extra fur in other places. Sagging and wrinkling in some ways, you know, as my dear beloved friend Wes, the Dharma teacher and, you know, comment, com- comic commentator on life says, the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard, you know. And all these weird things of aging happens. It's just how it is. But there's a strange thing as you look in the mirror. And that is that you don't necessarily feel much older. You know that? Like, there's the body aging. But actually, I don't feel that. So common. And that's because it's only the body that's aged. In that moment of gazing in the mirror, you are becoming the one who knows what Ajahn Chah called the witnessing, the loving awareness, the mindful loving awareness itself that steps out of identity with the body and rests in the vastness of consciousness and says, hmm, it's getting a bit older, that body, isn't it? Just how it happens. And there's an understanding. In that moment, you become like the Buddha. You become the awakened one who sees with the eyes of understanding, compassion. You become grateful as you open. Gratitude, mercy, when you look with mindful, loving awareness, a mysterious love for it all, the whole of human incarnation, the full catastrophe, as Zorba said. Yes, he had it all. And he danced and he loved it. And when a baby's born, we all go, ooh, baby, baby, and hold it. And, you know, that new baby smell and that incredible feeling of this little being that's just popped out of good heavens. Her or his mother's body and become, here I am, another human being on the planet. Amazing. There's so much love for babies that come in we have. And when someone is ready to die and we're fortunate enough to be with them, we hold their hand as they're ready to pass as a gesture of the only thing that matters, a gesture of love. We start with love. We end with love. In fact, that's what we, what you are. It is who you really are. You are loving awareness itself. So take time to be quiet as best you can. Walk in nature. Sit. Meditate. Do your loving kindness or your compassion or whatever practice. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge to the gate into the garden inside. You can always go there, says the poet. So reflect for a moment. Maybe let your eyes close just for a minute. 
I ask you, what are you most grateful for? And what gives you trust in these difficult times? Where have you learned trust? And what gift are you longing to give to the world? Trust your good hearts, you know. It doesn't take very long, just a minute or two, to get quiet and listen. And when you do, it's called a sobat. The Sufis call it a dialogue with the heart. When you ask, the heart will answer. So thank you. I think now we will shift to do a little bit of dialogue with a few people who have, presumably they have questions, but hopefully they also have answers. Let's find out. Um, I do have a question. I don't think I have answers, though. I was hoping you might talk about equanimity. Um, too often I, I feel like a, a leaf in the wind. Um, someone praises me, likes what I've done, and I feel buoyed and happy. Someone else argues with me or criticizes me and my mood goes down. Um, I think with sitting, I'm becoming more aware that this happens, but I don't feel stability. I, I still feel like I'm being pushed here and there. I just wondered if you had thoughts about that. So let's do a tiny bit of practice together because it's such an important question and you've articulated it so well because you're already you're becoming quite mindful of it. So if you're kind enough, let your eyes close. And remember a time. Let's go for blame because that's the tough one. When somebody criticized, judged, or blamed you. Let one pop up on the screen inside. You don't have to tell the content, but just remember it. Tell me when you have a scene. I do. Okay. And now notice you've got the blame arises, you know, in the judgment. And then you have a reaction. So notice what the reaction is without judging it. I think the reaction is being defensive, protecting myself, explaining to myself why I'm right. 
So feel that. Feel the defensiveness, the protection, and the contraction. If it had a center in your body, where would it be? Someplace most central to it. Hmm? Probably my stomach. So feel that place in your stomach. And what's it like? Tight, hot, cold, throbbing? Tight, a bit uncomfortable. So feel it's tight and uncomfortable. You've been attacked, it feels like, and now you're tight and defending yourself and trying to make yourself right. One more question. How long ago did you learn to tighten up and contract and defend yourself? When did you first learn it? How old were you? Oh, gosh. Pick a, pick a number. Elementary school. I mean, yeah. Before that. Yeah, five years old, something yeah. like that. So see this little five-year-old Greg, and somebody's criticizing him, and he doesn't know any better. He thinks there's something wrong with him, and he has to protect himself from that. Protect, defend. So if you could put him in your lap now and hold him and say, you know, this is the way incarnation is. Some people like and some people don't. They judge and they bless and they praise and they blame. And we'll get through this, okay? Let me just hold you a little bit. See if he'll, how he likes that. Yeah, I think he likes that. Yeah. And now notice that you actually have become the witness to this whole drama, to the child who's been trying to defend himself and to the adult who remembers and feels it in his stomach. And feel that witnessing like the space in the room. You're actually the vast space of awareness, of loving awareness, mindful loving awareness. That's noticing all this. You've done it beautifully. And the fact that you can notice it means that it's not who you are. It's part of the drama. And the point of equanimity is to not have the reactions come. They're just reactions. You can bow to them and say, oh, yeah, here you are, pain. Here you are, fear. Here you are, defending yourself. Then you can feel that child, oh, frightened about the world with compassion. And then you can be like those images from Prolomarua. You see it all, rejecting none of it with a great heart of compassion. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do it in front of lots of people. So that was actually, there's a lot of courage to do that. I appreciate it. And it's not your question. It's our question. All these people are like hanging on the screen saying, okay, how about me too? You know, because the point of equanimity is not to stop the dance, but to come to that stillness and spaciousness that says, oh, yeah, this is part of being human. It's okay. And not actually get caught, not believe it so much. And you did it beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Jack. Can you hear me? It's Arisika. Oh, hello. 
I love you, Aristica, my dear friend of so long. Hi. Hi. So I I have a, a question. I I think I got this great gift in that um on November first, right before the election and right before my birthday, my husband fell and fractured a vertebra. Had to be taken out, you know, in a sling, down the stairs. And he's been recovering, but it's slow. And what I've noticed, you know, there are periods that he's in pain. And and so I hear this moaning and groaning, and it, and it really takes me back to the 20 years I was a midwife. And one of the questions, I feel so connected to all the people, you know, all over the world who are caring for loved ones. And I, I feel this paradoxical, immense gratitude that I can drive to, there is a pharmacy, I can drive there in five minutes, we can get all these, this paraphernalia, there's running water, there's washing machine, you know. So all this gratitude and, and at the same time, just such, you know, just such openness of the heart. It's, it's, I mean, for the first couple of days, I actually occasionally had pain in the parts of my body where he was hurting. And part of the question is this issue about, I don't know, the differences or the boundaries or between like loving kindness and equanimity and compassion. And, you know, is it, I'm realizing that, um, I haven't felt this raw and this connected to suffering. I know about the suffering. And certainly there's been all the suffering around Black Lives Matter and all these murdered black people and all of that. But this, I mean, we didn't even pay much attention to the election because we were so busy just caring for one another. And, and, and so there's some question about do I, if I don't feel this raw, I mean, I mean, it's almost like I can feel the heart opening and something coming out. I mean, is it only when I'm so close to suffering that I can feel? I mean, I just noticed how, how different it is. I, I'm not being very coherent, but do you have any thoughts? Mm. First of all, I'm just really touched by what you say, because we know each other for a long time, and I do know you've lived through a great deal, you know, both of the sufferings, the the sufferings, whether it's in the family or community, or being a black woman in, in the, in a racist, you know, culture, all of these kind of things, and your work as a midwife and teacher. My experience of you is that you are actually beautiful and perfect exactly as you are. <laughs> I hate to say this to you. <laughs> and, and with that, I also know that the heart has its seasons and that just as the body breathes, you know this, you know, and the cerebrospinal fluid and the menstrual cycles with the moon and the tides and so forth. Um, not just the physical heart, but the, the connecting heart, which is what you're talking about. It opens and closes. 
And sometimes you want it open, you know, but you can't always live that way. And then it says, okay, enough. I got I to gotta come back and just be peaceful for a bit. It's just, it's too much to carry, you know. Uh, or sometimes it feels deeply connected. And then sometimes that passes. And because everything is impermanent, that's impermanent too. Mm. And what I hear you describing, um, and, you know, I could bow to it, is the, the deep, intimate, tender connection that comes in, in that kind of love that you have, you know, in your marriage and the people that you care about. And sometimes it's very raw. Sometimes it's raw because it's the world and you feel it. And then sometimes you take a breath and you go, wow, that was a time of being really raw. And it's not like one of them is right and another isn't. The space of loving awareness of mindfulness holds all of that and says, yeah, this is our human life. And I see you doing it really um, damn well. <laughs> How does that sound to you? Thank you, Jack. It's oh, yeah. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And is he getting better? Is he getting... Is yes. He... Yes, he's getting better. It's just slow. The body, his body, he's 80. So the body man... Yeah. If you're body. older, it's, it takes its time. I, I, I'm only 75, but I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Let's see who appears next in the magic screen. This one is magical. Hi, Jack. Hi. This is Seema. This is Seema. Hi, Seema. I am thrilled to be in your presence. I'm one of your students in the MMTCP program. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, I have been uh, thanking the pain that I have experienced in life. Um, and what I'm noticing is that the forgiveness that I had when I was 28 and my father was shot um, in the middle of the street back home in Iran, I forgave the person who killed my, do- uh, my father. And then right after that, uh, my daughter had PTSD because of the war between Iran and Iraq. And uh, I remember that I came to you one day in Spirit Rock and I asked you, how can I forgive Ahmadinejad? And you told me, just like you and I, he had a mom who cared for him. I was able to forgive him. But as we go on, I realized that Forgiving someone who has done something away from me and my family is harder. I find it much harder to forgive someone who is uh, keeping kids in the cage or doing something to people who are not uh, related to me. I just wanted to see if you have something... uh, that can help me. Mm. This is a, it's not just your question. It's really a question for a lot of us. 
it is um, because there is there's so much pain that we create. We could call it tragic because we know better as human beings. And yet some of us are doing things that bring grievous pain to children, to vulnerable people. Um, and it is heartbreaking. So first, just to now you're just describing some of the great sufferings of the world that you see. And in particular, to see those who are causing suffering. I'm not even sure forgiveness is the right practice for that. You know, who are we to judge them or forgive them? What we see is they're creating suffering and it may inspire us to do what we can to prevent that from continuing, to stand up in what ways we can for justice and to stop that in all the ways we can. I think there's a place for compassion. It's a very, very different uh, channel than forgiveness. And I think about the Dalai Lama speaking of the Chinese military who've not only taken over Tibet, as we know, and burned the sacred monasteries and texts and killed so many monks and nuns and imprisoned them. And he calls them, my friends, the enemy. It's interesting he uses that word. He doesn't just say, my friends. <laughs> he says, my friends, the enemy, the en- those who are trying to destroy us. Um, when he speaks, he speaks about seeing with the eyes of compassion and says, even they, just as we talked about, even they have moms, even they have their reasons, even if they're twisted and hateful and ignorant and, you know, based on so many falsehoods and greed and so forth. And he gazes with the eyes of compassion and he says, yes, they too suffer. They cause suffering and they will suffer. There's a way in which I don't want to answer your question because I don't think it's fair. Um, It's too deep a question to just give a verbal answer to. You know, I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was in the gulags in Siberia and tortured at times and said, you know, it would be so easy if we could blame someone over there, the evil evil ones, and only get them out of the world, and then everything would be fine. But the line cutting, the line dividing good and evil also cuts through our own hearts. And how can we get rid of a part of our heart? So I don't have a simple answer for you. Um, I think forgiveness may be the wrong frame, and that actually it's just, compassion for so much suffering doesn't um, forgiveness start with uh, compassion it does and it might come to that and it might not but I wouldn't even aim for that if you can live with compassion that already is, is actually quite magnificent how does that feel to you as we talk does it feel like it's Skipping over the problem or? Um, you said, when does the trust start? When does the trust start? Well, 
part of the trust is also knowing what's true, that you can trust someone who is doing terrible things to continue to do terrible things. It doesn't mean you trust them to be something other than that. You can trust your own perceptions. Oh, this person is so caught in their hate that what I trust is what I see, and that's what's there. I think you need to really trust that you see with some clarity. And then you trust, well, what can I do? What am I able to do in this world that reduces suffering, that protects those as best I can? I think the same wisdom or uh, teachings that have helped me uh, not to be destroyed and uh, be mindful as teacher myself in the future is going to hold hold this space for me. So that that's the kind of trust that I'm talking about. And I listen to you when you talk about the way your father was shot and killed, you know, and 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 then your daughter too. Um, it's so powerful to hear what you say. And you have um what Durkheim talked about going through something that was annihilating, actually, you now have a kind of moral authority to tell the truth about compassion and pain because you know it and to say, yes, and that's not all of who we are. You know something bigger, and that's a great gift. So I honor that. Thank you, Seema. Thank you, Jeff. One last question, or dialogue, or whatever you learned. Hi, Jack. Oh, it's Tim. Hi, another friend for years and years. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. It's so great to see you and hear you. Uh, I think we met about uh, 44 years ago uh, back at IMS. Every time you speak, it's something new. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to see you. Likewise. So I've been um, kind of going back to basics a little with my practice, and I've been trying to explore the Vedana practice, and I've tried like, Vedana, the feeling Vedana, tone. right, feeling, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, yes. And um, I've checked out, like, six different books and different guided meditations. And I just feel like they're either all over the place or they're not quite right. I was wondering if you had any guidance, any tips on good books or guided meditation recordings or where to go for something like that. You're talking about feeling and there are two dimensions to it. One is the traditional dimension that every experience can be felt as pleasant or neutral or unpleasant and we tend to grasp the pleasant and resist the unpleasant and becoming mindful of that is a gateway to liberation in some way that's probably all you need you you can like you know the rest of those books you can put on your shelf for somebody else to read honestly but also there's something really mysterious about feeling We are in this human incarnation, 
And part of what makes us alive is the fact that we can feel. I mean, I have these friends who are working on the biggest AI project in the world for artificial intelligent computing, and their big question is, is it ever going to start to feel? Because that's what makes us human, is that we feel joy and sorrow. There's the primary feelings and then all these secondary emotions. From the pleasure and pain, there comes joy and sorrow and grief and delight and, and so forth. I think more of the practice is to appreciate feeling, not to figure it out, because it's a mystery. Nobody knows. Really, how is it that we have feeling? It's it's ridiculous that that life should feel in consciousness, and it does. You know, and it brings tears, and it brings art, you know, and it brings communion, and it brings war. It brings everything out of feelings, which is why the Buddha said, pay attention to feelings, because they can lead you different ways. Let it be more of a mystery. Keep it really simple. You know, and notice what feelings you follow. Now, there's a practice. <laughs> that I follow? <laughs> which feelings arise and which feelings you follow. Following what sense? You know, and it's not just that you avoid unpleasant and follow pleasant, but they're all the secondary feelings and emotions. And if you understand that, you start to become really wise about who Tim is in his life and his personality. And hopefully from it, there comes a greater and greater compassion and understanding, wow, look at all this. This is what human life is like, you know. I'm just um, deeply appreciative that you're practicing with beginner's mind after 44 years. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny little story just as a way to end. Sharon Salzberg, who we all know, the great, you know, goddess of metta and wonderful teacher and friend and colleague and all of those kind of things. When she was young in India and she was practicing as a very ardent student of Vipassana and meditation with Goenka and Manindra and Deepama, her teachers, somebody then handed her the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from Suzuki Roshi that was published around that time, late 60s, early 70s. And she looked at it and she sort of tossed it aside and said, I'm not a beginner. I don't need the beginning book. She told me this later, you know. And only later when she opened it, as I do, and then you read, he says, the goal of meditation, the end of meditation, <laughs> is always to keep your beginner's mind in such a deep and brilliant way. And I know that when I go on retreat, sometimes I'll take it and just open it to a random page. And wherever I am, Suzuki Roshi speaks to me. It has that kind of absolute simplicity and absolute depth. So your inquiry into the mystery of feeling um, is totally cool. And beginner's mind is an advanced practice, so I salute you for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, let's just take a couple breaths, if you will, and be quiet just for half a minute.
and feel whatever has touched or inspired you that you want to remember because it's what you already know. And know that you can trust your good hearts. And then let your eyes open.